talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, from Canada's Wonderland. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. I have to go tame the Leviathan while keeping my lunch down. Here's Scott Thompson. He likes to ride. That boy likes to ride. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Lots going on this weekend. Getting ready for a long weekend. Festival of Friends kicks off. Uh, we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on this hour as well. So as the summer of 2022 continues. Uh, it's supposed to be a pretty good weekend, too, so you can't argue with that. Uh, dog days of summer, as they say. Uh, whatever that means. All right, uh, let's move on and uh, talk about the uh, big news stories of the day. Of course, uh, still uh, the situation in regard to uh, the Pope and his uh, pilgrimage through uh, Canada. It's amazing how, um, as uh, as the, when this started, the tone was uh, certainly um, uh, soulful. It was certainly um, emotional. It was certainly, uh, uh, I think, surprising to a lot of people on how much we saw the Pope and the Indigenous community embrace. And of course, as time goes on in this journey, as time goes on, we're seeing, uh, and especially towards the end of the tour, we're seeing that there is, um, you know, people who want a little more out of this, people who want to to see some change and something more than just uh, a, a nice apology and um, and then a trip home after a, a good photo op. Here's a, a neat report from Global News, Brandon Jagerheisen, about uh, the Pope in Quebec and, and, and his response to the people of Quebec and their response to him. This was a mass that was the mass of reconciliation. It lasted about an hour and 15 minutes, a very touching service, one that the Pope started his opening remarks in the official language of Quebec in French, the first time we've heard him speak the language. He then continued to speak in Spanish that was translated in French. As for the event in itself, we did hear several remarks and hymns and songs that are common in Christian practices here when it comes to ceremonies and masses of this sort. We also heard songs that were sung from indigenous peoples inside the basilica. And we've certainly seen over the course of the last few days the outpouring of emotion, uh, and and you every single person, indigenous and non-indigenous, uh, looking at, at this through a different lens. So it's been fascinating, as Braden reports here, of what the survivors have been saying to him. When we have yet to see concrete action in these steps forward towards reconciliation, I had a number of people that I spoke to here walking out, residential school survivors, who said that at least this was a moment that was meant for them, the Pope really targeting them as the audience, and they say that this was something as a stepping stone to begin what is going to be a long journey as many people leave here thinking about what the future will bring when it comes to this situation. going to be fascinating to see how this tour ends up uh, as it is in its final leg, obviously, and, and what the impressions are 
uh, a few days afterwards. And, and again, the work has to continue. All right, the other big story today, obviously, Hockey Canada. Uh, we're hearing more and more about the slush funds, uh, the slush funds set up to handle uh, the settlements that uh, they have paid out through their national equity fund, $7.6 million. A lot of that coming from uh, just fees they gather from signing up kids. And here's what, uh, of course, CEO Scott Smith of Hockey Canada had to say. He's on the hot seat right now, and many are asking for his resignation. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined in our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. And obviously lots of chatter about how much uh, the sports minister knew about all of this, how much information was shared between Hockey Canada and the government on what was going on. So obviously calls from the opposition uh, to step down as well. Here's uh, MP Peter Julian, NDP MP uh, Peter Julian on his thoughts. I feel like many members of the Canadian public that I have lost confidence in Hockey Canada. We have lost confidence in Hockey Canada. And I think it is time for new leadership. And, of course, uh, as well in the other party, in uh, the Conservative Party, John Nader, MP, also speaking out on behalf of the Conservatives. For the good of hockey, for the good of the countless volunteers across this country, the good work that countless blameless people are doing in the sport of hockey, I strongly believe there needs to be new leadership within Hockey Canada. All right, there you have it. Uh, will it uh, bring on change? We'll wait and see, but certainly a lot of attention paid to Hockey Canada right now and how they are conducting their business. Many asking for those at the top to step down. Hard to change a culture without changing the people who have been leading that culture or at least enabling it. We'll be talking about that coming up a little later on uh, this hour as well. And an interesting aspect coming out of the pandemic. I shouldn't laugh. Um, I know someone who's caught up in this sort of thing. What happens when, and unfortunately, you know, over the course of this pandemic, some of us have rearranged our priorities. We've decided what's positive and important in life and such. And for some, that means uh, moving on from their partners, getting divorces. What happens to pets when uh, all of a sudden the family is split up? Is it any different from kids? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. We were talking the other day to the uh, uh, the head of the CNE. It's, it gets to run this week, uh, this weekend, this summer. Uh, at the end of the summer, obviously, uh, for the first time in two years, talking about Super Crawl coming back. This is the great thing of the summer of 2022, man. The festivals are all gearing up. Sound of Music Festival, and this one, which is a landmark event in the Hammer and has been since 1976. Festival of Friends starts up tomorrow. Engage park three days of fun to talk more of all uh talk more about all of it robert ricosi is with us general manager of the festival of friends and with us now robert thanks for the time i hope you're well uh busy and a little sunstroked but doing well <laughs> all right you're gonna it looks like you're gonna have a great weekend for it too all right uh, as i mentioned the one consistent in this festival over the years is uh it's always been free to those that don't know anything about the festival of friends who may be listening or new hamiltonians describe it for us so the Festival of Friends started in the 70s as a, a small uh, folk festival. The first Festival of Friends had Paul Schaefer, um, a 20-year-old Daniel Lanois, uh, Raffi before he was big, and now it's grown into uh, one of Canada's top three largest free music festivals. And uh, it has games, uh, rides, crafts. There's over 160 crafters on Saturday alone, um, and artists and vendors and food. 
And but the main thing, the main show is the music. We put on Canada's or Hamilton's biggest concert of the year. Uh, we have a full stage. If you've never been, it's like being at an arena rock show. It's amazing. So let's talk to the acts. Uh, talk about the acts and what you got coming up Friday and Saturday and Sunday as well. Uh, so we get that out of the way because uh, you got a pretty strong lineup. Yeah. So uh, Friday kicks off with uh, Serena Ryder um, at nine thirty p.m. Um, she's probably, arguably, Canada's one of Canada's biggest female artists. I mean, outside of you know Alanis Morissette and Shania Twain, she's she's pretty big. Um, we have uh, a young kid named Ryland James opening, who, if you have a 20-year-old uh, child, they are probably <laughs> familiar. Um, he just actually did the national anthem for the NBA, NBA All-Star Game back in, uh, in the spring. Uh, so that's going to be a huge night. Um, and then Saturday, uh, it's going to be by far the biggest night, is uh, Monster Truck, the Hamilton favorite local band who just finished touring Europe. Uh, to 50, 60,000 people stadiums. Um, they're doing their first hometown show in four years and their first big rock show in probably in Hamilton's in six. So, and it's free and it's going to be incredible. And opening for Monster Truck, part of our indigenous showcase, uh, we are doing the Snotty Nose Res Kids, which are a, uh, a rap duo um, from BC. Uh, but the biggest part about that is it's the first time the Festival of Friends will be featuring uh, a hip-hop group of any major note, um, which has made a couple of the uh, the old-timer folk fans a little a little nervous, but, you know, things change, and uh, we got to kind of keep up with it, or, you know, the next generation won't know the Festival of Friends. Hey, good for you, Robert. Way to think forward. So, um, uh, obviously, the great thing about this festival over the years, and, uh, you know, you were talking about the original lineup. Wouldn't it be cool to get some of those people back for uh, an anniversary of some sort? But anyway, I digress. Uh, this has always been free. How do you guys do that? How did you keep this alive um, and, and even uh, survive through a pandemic? Uh, it was very difficult. Um, it's mostly due to the fact uh, the support of the, uh, the federal government, uh, and the Ontario provincial government, and to a little bit lesser extent, the city of Hamilton. Um, but without their support, um, allowing us to pay bills that we'd already been on the hook for when COVID first came around, um, and then supporting us uh, with funding to, to put towards at least keeping the lights on. You know, we didn't all get our full pay, but it allowed us to, to make sure that the organization didn't lose the momentum we've had over the years. And so it's thanks to the levels of government. And coming back, it's all about uh, Tim Hortons, obviously the government of Ontario has been huge in all the levels, but Tim Hortons was huge in getting us uh, back on our feet with sponsorship as well as a few locals uh, like the Opus Team Realty. There were just, I know it's like, it sounds like I'm selling and shilling, but without these people, we don't pay for this thing. And, but the biggest money comes from you guys buying beer, uh, the vendors buying funnel cakes, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's what pays the bills and allows us to keep doing this. And talk about the, the, you know, the crew of volunteers that keeps this going every year. Yeah, we have 75 people in the park right now. Um, there are two babies in the park. Uh, they're not working, don't worry. Um, <laughs> they are fourth-generation volunteers. This is their first festival, but their uh, grandparents um, were volunteering in the 70s. And that's a big part of the festival, that there are at least a dozen multi-generational teams that come, fathers and sons, grandfathers, sons, and their grandchildren. Um, that's what keeps the festival going. If we had to pay these people, uh, we couldn't do it. And it's all, it's all due to them.
Obviously, Robert, uh, we've all been caged up for the last couple of years. Uh, this is the first summer where we really get to get out and kind of spread our wings. What are you anticipating? I mean, you know, some are scared. Oh, my goodness, are people going to come out? But on the other hand, I think you get a real buzz that, uh, man, people just can't wait to get out and get back to this sort of stuff. That's exactly what, what I'm expecting. You know, website traffic, and who knows what that means, but it's up 50% over 2019, which is ridiculous. Um, but the park's big. There's plenty of room for everybody. Um, so spread out, you know, and uh, it's going to be an amazing show. All right, Robert Ricosi with us, general manager of the Festival of Friends, festivaloffriends.ca to find out more and all the information you need to know as this great Hamilton tradition continues. And don't forget, it's all free. Gage Park this weekend, festivaloffriends.ca to find out more. Good luck, Robert. Appreciate it, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined in our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. That is Hockey Canada CEO Scott Smith, uh, of course, uh, under fire, taking questions about the revelations around Hockey Canada, the slush fund, uh, abuse settlements they paid out for the last several years to the tune of about $7.6 million and very much under the spotlight. Many asking for uh, his head and those below him. How far? How deep do you go? What changes need to be made? Ian Kennedy is with us, writer for the Hockey News, analyst for Yahoo.Sports, sorry, Yahoo.ca Sports, author author of On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race and Sport. Ian is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I am. Thank you for having me. So how big a black eye is this for Hockey Canada? Well, I think it's tremendously damaging to the organization, but I think more so it's a, an opportunity for us to all see the shortcomings that exist within hockey, within policy and protocols to keep not just people within the game safe, but uh, the general public as well. So it's a real reckoning and an opportunity to make things better, I guess, if we want to try and take it from a positive light. But there's an immense amount of work to be done uh, within Hockey Canada and the sport itself, that's for sure. Anything new here, Ian, or just exposure now? I think moving forward, uh, the, the real deal is going to be watching what Hockey Canada does with their action plan and see if anyone like Scott Smith, the president of Hockey Canada, does lose his job because as many of the MPs in the hearings the last few days have stated, as many in the media have stated, uh, including myself, uh, I don't believe that he is the person to carry this forward. Uh, you know, someone can't be part of the problem and then expected to be part of the solution as well. Well, even from an optic standpoint, uh, and as you just mentioned, how do you how do you change a culture you have enabled for for so long? So that's one challenge. The second is, in the eyes of Canadians, are they convinced? Yeah, I don't think any Canadians convinced right now that Hockey Canada is capable of fixing this mess. And it's not just the 2018 uh, sexual assault allegations. It's not just the 2003. You know, we we have records of dozens upon dozens of these cases that have made it to the courts uh, or to the media or at least had uh, police reports filed. And beyond that, we have to expect that there's hundreds of uh, similar accusations and similar incidents that have occurred across Canada that just aren't being reported, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. It's not always easy for victims of sexual assault to step forward 
and the systems and the power imbalances in hockey uh, really make that even more difficult. So I, I really do believe this is the tip of the iceberg, and people in Canada should be absolutely questioning Hockey Canada and absolutely doubting their capability of fixing this problem. And we're also hearing, obviously, dipping into a fund in order to cover the cost of all of this, but even to pay for insurance to cover the cost of these sort of settlements. If you're buying insurance for something, is that not admitting there's a problem? Absolutely. I think that uh, there's a variety of of items out there that show that Hockey Canada is well aware of the problem. Um, The fact that they've created this slush fund, uh, which most corporations have to pay for uninsured losses, but... uh, the fact that a lot of it, $7.6 million, went towards settling sexual assault allegations uh, should be extremely alarming to Canadians. Um, and, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about the independent, quote-unquote, uh, investigations that have been ongoing by Hockey Canada. But at the hearing that we just had, we learned that they paid that independent investigator $287,000 and that uh, the lawyer in charge repeatedly at the hearings claimed client solicitor privilege. So she was unwilling to divulge information on direction from Hockey Canada. So it's not very independent when the lawyer is protecting information that might cause more harm to Hockey Canada. So we really should be doubting things from top to bottom. The money that's come out, uh, the, the hidden messages and the hidden information that's still not being given to the public. Uh, there's just so many layers to this story that that uh, Canadians should be concerned about. How deep should this cut be? What needs to be done here right off the top, Ian? Right down to the grassroots level. I I firmly believe that the systems ingrained, the issues ingrained, the ideology, the entitlement that hockey players feel, and this message that because you're a hockey player in Canada, you're somehow special or above the rules, uh, that goes right down to the second kids put their skates on. So, If we're talking about the cuts, well, everyone at the top needs to go because they're not going to fix it. And then whomever is brought in really needs to institute uh, a sweeping change, uh, focusing on education, focusing on uh, consent, and this uh, removal of these toxic, uh, hyper-masculine kind of ideas that we, you know, the playing through the pain and uh, you have to be tough and you can't cry and these things that... Kids are taught right from the time they first uh, learn the game. So it's got to be top to bottom, but the cuts have to happen at the top, and then the learning has to happen at the bottom. Um, Top to bottom is what you're saying. What does that do for the sport? What does all of this do for the sport, right down to those kids that were taken to the rink every weekend? It makes it better. I mean, there's no no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Uh, If, you know, we're talking about Scott Smith and his hearings continuously talked about protecting the victim and doing the best thing for the victim. Well, the best thing for the victim was to be able to enjoy hockey, be surrounded by hockey players, and not be fearful and not be a victim. And, uh, you know, kids are, are leaving hockey because of this hazing and because of this homophobia and racism that is pervasive throughout the game. So, if we want to grow the sport and find the best athletes, then we can increase our talent pool on the men's and women's side by changing the culture around it. And that's not taking away from the you know skill development and the excellence that Canadian hockey players are known for. It's potentially finding more talented players by making the game just safer 
more inclusive, more diverse, and equitable for everyone. I uh, got a boy and a girl that have played since they were seven, still playing into their teens. Why are kids leaving the sport? Well, there's a variety of reasons. You know, the, the, that, the locker room culture is really difficult. Of course, the cost to play in Canada is immense. And if we're paying for these cover-ups, then the costs are only going to go up. Um, but I think that the biggest thing is that culture. Kids don't feel welcomed. They're teased. They're bullied. You know, if you don't play triple-A or double-A hockey, and if you're not going to junior, uh, if you're not going to college hockey, you're kind of looked at as lesser. I know there's opportunities to continue playing hockey throughout our lives uh, recreationally, but that's the biggest thing, you know, that the concussions, the uh, the bullying, all of those items are really forcing kids out. And if you don't see yourself represented in your coaches or the organization, as many uh, people of color don't in the sport right now, uh, then that's another aspect, too. So it really is a top to bottom that Hockey Canada has the opportunity at this moment to rip things back and build something better. Boy, I, that's uh, I, that's something that I'm sure every paro, uh, parent is echoing right now. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. What about those that are saying, come on, it's hockey, it's a rough sport. Blah, 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 blah. Well, it is a rough sport. I mean, physically, you can play the game of hockey legally. Um, you know, there's some of the, the toughest, most physical hockey that you'll see is if you watch women's hockey because they utilize body contact mm. in a proper way. And if you, uh, you know, follow the men's sport nowadays, it's so fast and so skilled that, of course, there's physical elements of it. But, mm. you know, when we get into talking about the, the brain injuries that come along with enforcers and, and things like we used to celebrate, well, I think we've really moved beyond that. We know the the substance abuse, the the CTE and the brain injuries that come along with repeated hits to the head. So that's not even part of the sport. The reason that you're assessed a five-minute penalty for fighting is because it's outside of the rules of the game. And, uh, you know, I don't think we see Conor McDavid get into too many fights, but we understand that uh, he's the absolute best in the men's side. And we don't see Marie, Marie Philippe Poulon get in, in too many fights on the women's side. And, uh, you know, it's just not the way it is. So, the game is definitely evolving, as all things do, and uh, that would be my response to those people, is that we need to look forward to how to keep more people playing hockey, not less. Well said. Ian Kennedy with us, writer for the Hockey News, analyst for Yahoo.ca Sports, author of On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race in Sport. Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Just talking to the Festival of Friends, and obviously they they kicking off uh, their event this weekend. Uh, Festival of Friends, my goodness, it's uh, an iconic event in uh, Hamilton, and like anybody else through COVID-19, has been put on pause. We've seen that change a lot of things, including who you want to shack up with. Um, you know, many have said that any issues that you might have had before a pandemic might have been uh, overemphasized during that tough time. And what happens when couples get divorced? Uh, and a lot of that has been happening. Um, what happens if they have kids? What happens if they have pets? And oddly enough, I've heard a couple of situations like this. What happens when um, the kids are pets and the couple splits out, uh, splits up, and each one is quite fond of rover and mittens do you have a prenup for the pup 
How does this work? Let's bring in Russell Alexander, family lawyer, author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce. Uh, why not? Russell, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, Scott. Great to be with you today. First of all, tell us about the Zoom divorce. Uh, I can only imagine. Well, it's one of the few efficiencies we realized through the pandemic. There's a silver lining here. You can go to your court hearing from the safety and privacy of your own home using Zoom, Skype, or conference calling uh, as opposed to attending in person. So it saves daycare, taking a day off work, parking, travel, gas, security, confrontations with your spouse at the courthouse. Uh, so it's, uh, it's been a real efficiency that we picked up and we're hoping that it stays with us in the future. You know, this sounds like a great idea. I can just imagine with the anxiety and just the emotion of it uh, to, to add on to whatever has to be done. This must help alleviate that in some ways. Going to court in the best of times is super stressful um, for just about everybody, including the lawyers involved. But if you're going through a divorce, it's amplified, especially if you're a victim of domestic violence. You don't want to see your abuser in court. Uh, you know, five feet away from you in the court hall or in the courtroom. So by doing it remotely, uh, you can put in a lot of safeguards. It's efficient. You save time and expense. You're not spending a few thousand dollars of your lawyer sit around the courthouse waiting for your case to be called. If it's scheduled for 10, you start at 10 and you're usually done in an hour. Great idea. And one of the positives to come out of the global pandemic. All right. How do pets fit into this um, a situation? Uh, hypothetically, a couple are, uh, are married, have a pet uh, since the time they were. What happens if after a couple of years they decide to split up? What happens to the pet? Yeah, I think we're going to see an increase in these cases, Scott. A lot of uh, pet ownership has gone up through the pandemic. A lot of people were at home, decided to buy pets. Uh Property, which is really what pets are, is a provincial power. So you see a patchwork of cases and laws throughout the country. Uh, depending on where you are and the facts of your case, it's going to depend on what the outcome is going to be. Should that change? Should we have, you know, should we have a different law for pets? Should we, uh, or is that just too big a kettle of fish to open? Well, for families, especially families with children, pets are like their children. You know, cats, dogs, these are really, really important members of the family. So I think taking strictly a property approach, such as, you know, who has the receipt from the pet store and you're the owner, I think is kind of insensitive. That's what we're doing in Ontario. The judges often argue they don't have the judicial resources to deal with pet custody cases and pet parenting time, that there's more important matters to deal with. But for families without children, these can be just as important as children in terms of the time that you spend with your pet and whether or not you get divorced, you're going to see your pet again. What You know, I joked about this in the preamble, but should you have an agreement ahead of time? Should there be a prenup for the pet? Yeah, well, just like many marriages, you don't plan your divorce when you're getting married unless it's maybe your second time around. Uh, so you're not planning who gets the pet when you go to the pet store as a couple, right? You know, um, yeah. Ideally, I guess, if, if you're unsure, put the cat or the dog in both your names, and that's going to give you, you know, an opportunity to say that the, the pet should continue to be with you. If it, in Ontario, if you have ownership of the pet, clearly it's your property. You're going to have that pet going forward. And lots of people find that's unfair because um, perhaps the other parent cared for that pet, 
walked that pet regularly, took it to the vet, groomed it, you know, all the, you know, all the hallmarks of parenting, although it's a pet. Uh, but all of a sudden this relationship with this animal is going to end because your relationship with your spouse is ending. That could be hard on a lot of people. So whoever owns it or whoever bought it owns it. Any advice other than getting it in both names? Any advice for people out there? Well, avoid going to court. You're going to spend thousands of dollars going to court. Try to work out a negotiated resolution. Uh, oftentimes with families, with uh, young children, usually the dog travels with the children, provides stability and routine, and it's something that provides comfort to the children. So that's an option, too, going forward. Russell Alexander with us, family lawyer, author of the new book, The Zoom Divorce, talking about pets and the role they play in all of this. Fascinating time. Russell, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a good day, Scott. Thank you. I want to get right to this because uh, I want to bring on Eric Thomas, host of Raceline Radio, heard every Sunday right here on CHML and uh, F1, uh, former F1 champion for time. Sebastian Vettel is retiring. So we thought, hey, we have to get the summary from the guy who knows his motorsports, Eric Thomas. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. We're good. We're good. And you, you, uh, you, you got into the segment the right way with uh, a little blues, which is always good. That whoever was singing there kind of, kind of reminds me a little bit of Buddy Guy. It had a little Buddy Guy yeah, yep. feel to it. So that was good. That was very good. We're doing well, Scooter. We're doing well. I haven't talked to you in a while. And uh, yeah, it's um, th- there were some rumblings in and around the cracks that Sebastian Vettel may want to retire at the end of this year. We thought it might be close. We didn't necessarily know that. It was going to be at the end of this particular season and in talking with, uh, with, uh, Lawrence Stroll and, you know, of course, the guy that owns the, the Aston Martin team that he's with that, you know, they were certainly prepared to exercise an option to bring him back for next year. But Sebastian really has nothing else to prove. That's a tired cliche, but it kind of tells the story. I mean, he's a, he's a four time champion, won all of his championships with the Red Bull team when he was with them and, at the time he started, I think it was in 2010 at that time, he was the youngest driver ever to win a Formula One championship. He was only 23 years old. And, uh, one of the, one of the, he's universally really, really, uh, liked and even loved amongst the, the different drivers, uh, in the Formula One paddock. He has a lot of respect for fans. He has a lot of room for fans. There's, there's an infinite number of stories, Scott, around, especially with fans and how good he is with fans. I mean, he, he talks to them. He's genuinely concerned about what they're concerned about. He appreciates the support. He, he's arranged tickets for fans when they least expect it. I mean, he's just an easygoing guy. There was, it wasn't that long ago, I forget, even forget the venue, where he was seen after the race helping out the maintenance crew by helping collect the garbage huh. in and around the paddock area. So... He's a very easygoing guy. When, when he was on and had his game face on, he was as intense as anybody in a Formula One paddock. But at the same time, away from the track is what really impressed me because he had an incredibly good sense of humor. Have you ever watched him on any kind of a variety show or a game show in, in, in Europe when he was on Top Gear and shows like that? He laughed so genuinely hmm. and so easily he never took what he did seriously in terms of, oh, it's life-altering and I need to have a furrowed brow all the time. He certainly took it seriously. you got to be pretty damn good to win four championships, but he never took it so seriously as to affect his demeanor 
away from the race so, track in terms of, yeah. So, so if he had a better ride, do you think he would stay? A lot of racers, if they can't win, if they can't be competitive, they don't want to play. Yeah. Do you think he'll race again? Um, I don't know. I don't know if he'll race in Formula One again. It wouldn't surprise me if he tries a few other forms of it, whether he tries sports cars as well. Maybe he follows Romain Grosjean, gives Indy cars a try. I mean, Jimmy Johnson's doing that. Romain Grosjean is doing that. F1 guys have done that before. He may decide to dip into, into that and do something away from F1, but I think he's, he's pretty much done with it. And, yeah, if he had a more competitive car and was winning races more regularly like he was with Red Bull, yeah, he, he may want to stay. But, what, he's 35 now, and generally in Formula One, when you reach that age and you're close to 40, you, you're pretty much on your final laps in the game anyway. So I don't know whether he could be enticed to go back to F1 if it was the right ride, maybe. But I think he'd like to try a few other forms of the sport, and we'll wait and see what he does. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio, every Sunday night right here on CHML, and I'm sure he will have more on all of this. As always, uh, Eric, thanks for the time, especially on short notice. Appreciate it. Not a, not at all. Anytime you need me, I'm here, Scooter. Take care, and we'll talk to everybody Sunday night on Raceline Radio. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We haven't talked about COVID-19 in a while, but uh, this is news today as vaccines are now pretty much available for everyone, including those that are under five years of age. What does all this mean? Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University. And with us now, Tom, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, I'm well, thanks, Scott. Uh, welcome back. Thanks so much. Great to be back and have you on talking about what we've talked about, my goodness, so many times for the last uh, two and a half years or so. But your thoughts, because now I guess virtually everybody has the opportunity to get vaccinated. Yeah, I, like overall, I think it's uh, a positive move. And, and like, I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good one. I think, you know, once you talk about once you're talking about kids and uh, and vaccinations, it, it's a slightly different story uh, than, you know, talking about adults. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, overall, you know, parents have to weigh, weigh up, uh, weigh things up and, and what's in the best interest of their kids. I, I think, you know, if, if, I, if you look at uh, who's at risk within the population, children are really at the, like at the, at the low, lower risk of the various age groups. Mm-hmm. So, so that's good. But uh, I think, you know, for me, if I'm as, as a parent, uh, if I was weighing this up, the, the, the sort of the, the, the thing that would sort of sway me to get the vaccination is really more about uh, the vaccinations are, uh, you know, are known to be very, very good at uh, stopping or, or preventing the serious outcomes. And, and so, so I think for, for kids, you know, obviously you, you want, uh, want to protect them as much as possible. And so, you know, start, you know, preventing this, you know, serious outcomes and, and hospitalizations is one aspect. The other aspect is, is if you can prevent uh, having becoming a case and then also the, the potential impacts of, of long COVID. And so, so I think the, those aspects of, you know, we, we're still trying to understand what the implications are for, for someone who becomes a case and then, uh, you know, long, the long COVID symptoms and, and what's happening there. I think, you know, for me, that would sort of sway me to say, well, you know, the vaccinations have been proved to be uh, proved to be safe in as vaccinations go. Uh, obviously, there are going to be some some people that and some kids that might have 
have a have a reaction to it, but but on balance, uh, does the benefits outweigh the risks? And and I think you know uh, that I th- I think they do. So thank you for explaining that, because that was my next uh, point, and in, in you alluded to this, that the hesitate, I mean, we all saw adults, I mean, we've got some of the highest vaccination rates uh, in the world. Kids, uh, there's a little bit more hesitancy amongst parents, and you can understand why. Um, but as you alluded to, the pros still outweigh the cons. Yeah, I, I think so, particularly around, uh, you know, as, as a parent, the last thing you want is your kid to be sick and uh, and so sick that they have to go to hospital. So, so I think you know, if, you know, if you weigh that weigh that in into the mix, as well as thinking about what are the potential sort of longer term impacts if they do do get it, and and uh, and I think uh, you know th- th- those 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 they would tip the balance for me as as a parent if I had children in in that age group. Like my my youngest is is seven, and. Uh, that I, w- I was comfortable with them them having the vaccination when it was available to them. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, even though it might, the vaccination may not stop uh, someone getting the getting uh, or becoming infected, mm-hmm. it will will be good at uh, or is effective at preventing the more serious outcomes. And I think that that's a that's a real positive. So, uh, you know, ov- obviously, some people might say, well, should we wait until the the newer ver- you know uh, formulation of the vaccine is available, and and maybe that that's that's a sort of a, a more of a decision point. Like I think vaccination or va- unvaccination, I would I would say you know the benefits outweigh the risk for for being vaccinated. The question is, do you have the current formulation or wait for the the new newer Omicron formulation? And and uh, and that's a bit more of a. Uh, uh, you know, a, a balancing act. I think if you if you're trying to decide, where are we with this in in this? Where are we in this pandemic? And I've only got a minute or so left yeah. um, because you know, obviously, people are vaccinated. Uh, I, I know more people that have had it than haven't had it, uh, and people just simply aren't getting as sick. I mean, they may be testing positive, have the sniffles, they're gone, whatever. Where are we with this virus right now? Yeah, I, I definitely. You know, there's. It, what where we where we're at is that uh, we're at a reasonably good point. The only issue is in regard to uh, hospitalizations. The numbers are going up, and the and the hospitalization numbers are are very much in 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 proportionally. Uh, people who are unvaccinated are the majority of people going to hospital and in ICUs. And so so th- from that perspective, uh, you know it, it's really again highlighting the the importance of of being vaccinated however i think if you're unvaccinated at this point in time you're probably not you know unlikely to get vaccinated uh you know you've had you know a couple of years to do mm. it so so that that's a that's a difficult one uh but it also then you know it reinforces the message of uh you know mask wearing and and uh and 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 uh social distancing when when you can as well as as additional measures Thomas Tenkate with us, Professor of School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, talking about COVID-19, now available for those under five, uh, virtually giving everybody the opportunity now. And if, of course, you're older, uh, get your boosters. Uh, Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. When we have yet to see concrete action in these steps forward towards reconciliation, 
I had a number of people that I spoke to here walking out, residential school survivors who said that at least this was a moment that was meant for them. The Pope really targeting them as the audience and they say that this was something as a stepping stone to begin what is going to be a long journey as many people leave here thinking about what the future will bring when it comes to this situation. That's Global News. Braden Jagenheis uh, in Quebec following the Pope on the last leg of his uh, his journey through Canada. Uh, a journey of reconciliation, and uh, it's been fascinating to watch over the last week. And, and, and you know, the tide is kind of turning from very emotional to uh, others that want action. And over and above reiterating he was sorry for the participation of local Catholic institutions in the residential school system and the wrong done by so many Christians. Pope Francis in the Vatican and local church communities were committed to promoting indigenous culture and spiritual commitment. He did not say that it was the Catholic Church as an institution that was responsible for the residential school abuses and that those physical, psychological, and sexual abuses need to be addressed. And there's a lot more to this. Others are saying it's a giant first step. Let's bring in Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard, Director of the First People's House of Learning at Trent University, and with us now. Don, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you. So, uh, obviously, I'll ask you your thoughts on this because we've had you on the show many times to talk about it. But is the tone changing from Monday to now? I think it's one of these things where there's so many different responses. Absolutely, you know, on Monday was for many residential school survivors and those who lost family members in the residential schools, you know, this this was an apology they had been waiting a lifetime to hear. Um, but I think as, as we go through the week and people start to, to look a, a little more closely at, at what the apology actually said, you know, start to, di- I don't want to say dissect, but that's, you know, as, as mm-hmm. we start to really break it down and look at what was said and, and more importantly, what was left out, as you noted, is, you know, has many leadership saying this was not enough. Uh, do, what concrete has to come out of this before the Pope leaves Canada? We're really hoping to see, you know, and, and as somebody who was raised in the Catholic Church myself, you know, I went to Catholic school, we were taught, you know, that confession, you, you have to have a full confession, of, of your wrongdoings. And I think, you know, in this case, if the Catholic, if the Pope, if the Catholic Church is going to walk the talk, then that means making a commitment to disclosing those documents so that the full truth, the, the enormity and, and sadly the atrocities that happened be fully disclosed. And then some of those families can have closure, you know, those children who never returned. And that's, really critical is releasing those documents, but also making that commitment to atonement. And this isn't about saying 40 Hail Marys. This is about trying to support healing from those who were wrong, from those who were so, you know, who who endured and and survived those residential schools. You know, what kind of healing programs do they need to be able to, to heal? And, and, and that intergenerational trauma that it, it hasn't impacted you know, multiple generations since then have been impacted by this. When the Pope uh, in Quebec today starting to see protests, signs up regarding the doctrine of discovery, every time we talk about this, I want you to tell or any guests to explain this so we try to educate more people on this and its importance. Um, 
will we see talk about this? But first, explain what it is. Well, this is really closely related to the way the Pope said that, you know, they were sorry that they supported the residential school system, you know, the system of assimilation and colonization, that they participated or cooperated. And really, it's absurd, because the Catholic Church has been around long before Canada was even imagined, much less, you know, and and this doctrine of discovery is, in fact, what created the foundation for those European nations to believe that they could come over here and simply take over countries, believing that if a country was not a Christian nation, that it was essentially declared terra nullius, that there, it was uninhabited, uh, because it was uninha- because it was inhabited by non-Christian peoples, because they were believed to be non-peoples, it was, and their, their overall program of trying to convert everybody, those papal bulls, though that doctrine of discovery essentially gave authority, gave the right to those explorers, to those European nations to come over here and have free reign to do it, to, to conquer, to take over and, and to eliminate, assimilate, you know, whatever nice words they want to use, call it civilized, that in, all in the name of Christianity. So to suggest that the residential schools were some tragic event that a few Christians participated in, is really denying the truth of the fact that it was the doctrine of discovery, those papal bulls, that created the foundation for that much later process that culminated in things, institutions like the residential schools. But they were really integral. There's, this is in no way a project of the government that the church somehow fell into. I mean, even the fact that after the residential schools were no longer funded by the Canadian government because they lost faith in that process or they weren't interested anymore, they didn't want to spend the money, the Catholic Church kept those schools going and conditions got even worse for the students because they were essentially used as slave labor to keep those institutions running. Many of those children never even saw the inside of a classroom because they were just being used as slaves in the fields to keep the schools running. Um, I, I just came back from Italy this week and have toured the Vatican, and the history is is deeply extensive. You can see how this all fits in. How do we now deal with this 600-year-old uh, doctrine through today's lens? Well, this is the thing. It needs to be rescinded. The Church, the Pope, who you know, is the representative now of the Church that made these papal decrees at the time, these papal bulls, they need to rescind them. They need to say that these are not appropriate, that these, they need to break down that foundation. And that's what many people are calling for. It's not, it's not good enough to apologize with a suggestion, you know, that for the actions of a few or, or some Christians, the bad actions, this is not a case of a few bad apples. This is a case of an entire system of a church that justified the colonization and the oppression and exploitation of indigenous peoples around the world, not just in Canada. And that's, you know, it, they really need to, to rescind that degree because as long as it's still there justifying what happened here, then, you know, there, there is no real, the, then the apology seems false, I guess. It, it seems, you know, you're, you're apologizing for a symptom um, not the underlying foundation that created the entire system. 
is it too late to turn back now? In other words, and I've asked you questions like this before, can the Pope, the Church, move on and not complete this? Can this be put on a back burner? Well, I think that's the thing, especially right now when so many young people, I mean, myself, I, we have many students who were brought up in the in the Christian faith, in the Catholic Church, and were taught those foundations of confession, of atonement, of reparations, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a foundation of the belief, and they're having a real crisis of faith right now. And so, absolutely, if the Church is going to have any relevance moving forward, if they are going to maintain the confidence and the faith of those parishioners, those, you know, people in the community level that are supposed to be the foundation of the Church, then they need to make this right. They need to address what was wrong. They need to make a full confession, express that sorrow, make those reparations, because otherwise, you know, they're going against the foundations of the entire Catholic religion of the faith. And that's what really causing a crisis for a lot of young people, and they really need to see the Church do the right thing and and go all the way, as you've said, you know, really not fight to get paid less in, in those reparations, you know, $25 million. Let me Let me ask you this, Don, because you only got a few seconds left. Oh, let yeah. me ask you this. Is this all about money? If you admit too much, you're liable. Is this Does this come down to money? That's my concern, that that's why the sexual abuse was left out. That's why the church as an institution was never... Um, it, it never, they never admitted to that. It was sort of a few bad apples thing. And, and that's where, you know, when you're looking at it from a leadership perspective, it, it definitely falls short. And I, I do think there are concerns about legal issues, about lawsuits. But this is so huge in terms of, you know, walking the talk. They need to own this as an institution. And that's what turning over those documents is going to show, is that this wasn't a few bad apples. This was an entire system. Everybody at every level knew what was going on and kept doing it. Dr. Don LaBelle Harvard, Director of the First People's Housing of Learning at Trent University in Peterborough. Don, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. We'll chat again. Take care. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden has once again spoke with Chinese President Xi Jinping. This is a regular thing that goes on, although obviously with the pandemic, uh, not as much. Tensions are growing over Taiwan and other issues as well. Uh, What is a conversation like between these two presidents? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Afternoon, Scott. I understand they had a lengthy conversation, like over two hours. What is what are these conversations like? Is it all business? Is it is it you know is it gamesmanship? Is there emotion? What are these? What would these conversations be like? Two hours and seventeen minutes. The official White House readout was about two paragraphs long. A short summary of a very long conversation. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, as well as Xi Jinping, will try to establish, reestablish or carry on the personal relationships they've had. Uh, These are not strangers to each other. They've dealt with each other uh, before each one became head of their own country. And they've now had five of these talks since this is the fifth since uh, Joe Biden became president. This is all initially, first and foremost, and all the way through an attempt to manage the relationship between these two powers these two nuclear-armed largest economies 
in the world, and it's uh, on both sides, essentially, saying, we know we have difficulties, but we have to find a way to deal with each other, so let's talk. And I think that's what they did. They talked for two hours and 17 minutes. And I think they were also laying out the possibility of a face-to-face meeting. This has not been possible because of COVID and uh, also uh, Xi Jinping just doesn't like to go out, apparently, from the country much. But uh, there will be some meetings in the fall and in Asia, a couple different meetings. There may be possibly on the sidelines of those multilateral meetings, a face-to-face conversation. So uh, they have a lot of issues to sort out. They tried to set a tone for how to deal with it. And each one, of course, delivered very sharp and strong messages to the other party. Is it a conflicting relationship? Is it an edgy relationship? I mean, I'm thinking of Putin, for example, who you would just imagine would be impossible to deal with. Is there an agreement to disagree here? Do they respect each other? I think they respect the fact they have differences and (laughs) they accept the fact that they have differences and they try to find a way to uh, see to it those differences do not lead to an open conflict between these two superpowers, two nuclear armed superpowers. Of course, uh, the the most obvious difference right now, before we get to Taiwan, is the question of Ukraine. Uh, the United States has reorganized basically its entire foreign relations now to deal with the fact that Russia has attacked, unprovoked, a neighboring state, and there's a land war in Europe and just before going to, just before launching this war, February 14th, the war was 10 days later, uh, the attack came. Xi Jinping uh, welcomed Putin, Mr. Putin, who also doesn't travel to, uh, to Olympics. I think you and I talked about it at the time, mm-hmm. Scott. So they, uh, at that point, they basically declared they were friends for life. No, bo- no boundaries to their relationship. 10 days later, uh, now uh, six we're into, what, fifth month of that war. China has not condemned that invasion. Uh, they have been taking, buying, uh, at a discounted rate, a lot of oil. But Mr. Biden, I'm sure, has said, don't go any farther. Do not get yourself involved with this war, even though you will not oppose it. Uh, you do not provide material or military support to Russia. I'm sure that was one of the messages. Ukraine, I think, was a big part of this conversation. That was my next question. How much of that, as opposed to Taiwan, um, uh, is obviously that problem front and center more important, or is it an issue of Taiwan, and and, and is it the Hong Kong in waiting, so to speak? Well, there's so many different issues. What the press (laughs) release talked about was, we agreed to talk about the climate, and we're setting up working groups to carry on conversations on climate and other things. Clearly, Taiwan has uh, emerged not unexpectedly and not just recently as a key area of uh, discussion between the two leaders. The, uh, in March, this was also a, a centerpiece. The uh, United States has said we still maintain strategic ambiguity. Uh, that's the official policy saying that we, um, we won't say we will defend Taiwan, but we also say we won't. And we're telling Taiwan, you know, don't, don't go off half-cocked and declare independence. It's to shape the behavior of both China and Taiwan, strategic ambiguity. But three times Mr. Biden has said, oh, no, we're committed to defending Taiwan if attacked. Uh, those that get walked back. But uh, Joe Biden has been at this game a long time. Uh, those aren't gaffes. That's a message. 
Man, we could talk for an hour on this, and we will again. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for your time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And same to you. All right. uh, Interesting, fascinating watching uh, the Pope's tour of Canada and how things started out on Monday and how um, more accountability is being put forward, is being asked as we uh, get towards the last leg of this uh, of this journey and and many protesting or some protesting at uh, at various uh, situations today in Quebec as that's where uh, the Pope is right now actually at uh, Notre Dame Cathedral right now uh, delivering a service as well but many wanting the doctrine of discovery to be brought up and and th- this is more than just uh, I'm sorry and, and out the door we go uh, when the Pope did not say that the Catholic Church is an institution that was was responsible for the residential school abuses. Prime Minister Trudeau voiced the original demands of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that the Catholic Church apologize as an institution for the role that it played in the spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical, and sexual mistreatment of Indigenous kids suffered at the church-run schools. The Prime Minister, uh, it's, and I found this fascinating, that this has all been about the Pope, the Catholic Church, and the Indigenous community, which uh, I must say I'm very surprised at because I thought it would become a little bit more of a show and not directed at where it needed to be. Let's bring in Daniel Perry, consultant Summa Strategies, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Always good to join you, Scott. Are you surprised about the tone of this? Because it seems it, you know there's so much representation from the indigenous community. I, I don't think many thought that they would see that and are happy that that's what this is about because that's the reason that the Pope is here. Where does politics play into all of this and the prime minister? Politics always has a part to play in something like this. And this was a great first step by the Catholic Church and the Pope to start the healing process, but more needs to be done. And to his credit, Justin Trudeau is pushing the Pope and the Catholic Church on this because they played a major role and and a role that they need to own up to. Uh, That being said, how does the Prime Minister or any politician uh, take a step back and let the real issue move forward? Um, You know, I remember at the the initial meetings or so, there was a situation where uh, one of the chiefs did not shake the hand of the Prime Minister. I was watching uh, news coverage last night, and there was all these great pictures of the Pope and the Governor General. The one between uh, the one with the Pope and the Prime Minister didn't look as jovial. Are we reading too much into that? Probably a little bit. This is a very sensitive topic that uh, Canadians, Indigenous people, and everyone across the world is dealing with. So it's always hard to try to find the right tone. And it's not going to be a handshake or those big smiles slap on the back. It's a very sad and and solemn moment. And I think that's what that photo captured. Uh, And I think what the Pope's visit here is it's not a happy-go-lucky feeling tour that he's going on. He's very much going on an, an apology tour to a certain point, and he's slowly helping to rebuild the relationship with Indigenous people, and he's taking first steps. And I think Justin Trudeau is trying to play a role, and to his credit and to the credit of all politicians, it seems like they're kind of taking a hands-off approach and not trying to make this into a political storm and just letting this moment between, be between the Indigenous people and the Catholic Church. What do you think the Pope has to do before this uh, leg of the journey is over and he heads back to the Vatican? And what what part does politics play in that? 
I think he has to take ownership. I think he has to do what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has asked for, because uh, that's what the Indigenous people are looking for. And I think that is the right thing to do, is to take ownership of the role that the Catholic Church as an institution played in residential schools and be frank with people and apologize for it and mean it. Where at the same time where politics needs to play, it's very similar to that. The Liberals, they came in in 2015 promising to help with reconciliation. Their record has been spotty. And one of the first things that they should do and try to achieve is getting clean drinking water and removing all boil advisories on Indigenous land. That could be a really good first step if they're looking for a political win here. How much pressure can a prime minister or any leader, head of state, put on the Pope? Uh, I think the position Canada's in right now, not a lot. It's always hard to put pressure on the Pope just because of the institution that is around him. So I think Justin Trudeau is trying his best to try to nudge the Pope diplomatically. And he's honestly, he's trying. And for this prime minister, I think that's the best he can do. You said the position we are in. What did you mean? Clarify. The position we're in as Canadians, we're not on the international stage. We are not the ones pushing an agenda. We are the ones kind of in a backseat. So that was more of a comment on Canada's position in the international community than anything else. Daniel, how do you think Canadians who are not Indigenous are looking at this? Uh, Because everybody is. How how do you think Canada is feeling about this, the non-Indigenous community? Well, as a non-Indigenous Canadian, I'm happy to see we're making steps because... Mm we made big mistakes to how we treat indigenous people and this goes beyond residential schools and it's going to take a lot of time to heal this relationship and we're taking baby steps and there's still a lot more we can do so i think we need to take an active role in listening to the indigenous communities and understand what how they're feeling and giving them the spotlight because we need to be in listening mode as well and understanding the pain we've caused and try to work with them through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to find ways to help support them and kind of really rebuild a relationship with them. Daniel Perry with us, consultant Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. I believe I said in my opening statement uh, that I'm prepared to take on this responsibility for change within our game. I believe I've got the experience to do it. Should our board or the governance review that we've outlined in our action plan suggest that I'm not the person, then I'm prepared to accept that. That is the CEO of Hockey Canada, Scott Smith, uh, under the microscope today, uh, being asked to explain uh, the actions of Hockey Canada, including the massive amounts of payouts they have made, uh, about $7.6 million over time, uh, to, uh, I guess, allegedly, uh, to solve these alleged assaults. And uh, now, of course, uh, all of this is coming out, and many are asking for uh, the entire upper echelon of Hockey Canada to step down. Uh, the culture needs to change. Can you do that with someone who has been enabling this culture for so long? That is one angle. And, of course, the victims in all of this, let's not forget them. And and is this the tip of the iceberg? Uh, how many of these cases haven't even come forward? So, obviously, uh, a big black eye, both eyes for Hockey Canada. And we all know, especially with junior hockey, 
sponsorship and, and that sort of thing, a mass part of keeping this running. And how will all of this affect sponsorship of Hockey Canada and sports in general, uh, especially related to hockey? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you very much, Scott, uh, for inviting me. This is a very important subject uh, dealing with uh, corporate social responsibility. Obviously, uh, this story has hit the fan. So where does this leave sponsorship? Again, not the most important issue. The victims are in all of this, but this is certainly another layer in the onion. How does Corporate Canada look at this? Uh, I, I'm going to say something that may uh, really, really upset some of your listeners, but I'm, I'm here to speak truth to power. I'm tenured. I don't consult to anybody, profit or nonprofit companies. Um, uh, my argument is the following, and I've been talking about this for some time, for several years to my students. In the last five, six, seven years, the idea of corporate social responsibility by for-profit corporations has become more and more um, uh, strong, more and more stringent. Uh, it's supported more and more aggressively. The uh, I argue that the nonprofit world is way behind the curve, that they're far less sensitive. They don't have the checks and balances in place. They don't realize how powerful social media is and how young people are not putting up with uh, deeply inappropriate behavior. Um, corporations do. And, and so what they're doing is that they are reacting much more quickly today than they did five or 10 years ago. What does that mean in plain English? It means that if you are in partnership with some other, it could be an athlete, it could be a nonprofit association, and there it becomes a public evidence of some serious wrongdoing, the corporation, the corporate sponsors will drop that athlete or drop that nonprofit like a hot potato and cut them off completely. We're seeing that in, in, in the corporate world more and more. We saw it with Russia, where the, the mm. more and more companies were saying, look, we're not going to deal with Russia, even though we are not even subject to the sanctions, because we don't want our brand, our good brand, our good corporate brand, contaminated by the bad behavior, the extremely bad behavior of, of the uh, organization they're refusing to deal with anymore. So then what I'm trying to say is that the corporate world is much more dynamic today, the large corporate world, the ones that have big, deep pockets, big bucks to sponsor um, organizations, to sponsor uh, Hockey Canada. And so the checks and balances are coming from the power of the purse and, and from, uh, from the market economy and who are going to force these changes on to these organizations like Hockey Canada, because if they don't, they'll wake up the morning or the week after and find they don't have any revenues. They don't have any sponsors. And the money increasingly comes from corporate sponsors. So the corporate sponsors are really wielding uh, enormous influence um, uh, over these organizations, even if the executive of Hockey Canada haven't yet completely understood this or failed to uh, realize these changes going on in the corporate world of sponsorship. So what would be the boardroom message? And of course, we're just we're guessing at this point. What do you think the corporate message would be from the boardroom to Hockey, uh, Hockey Canada today? Um, clean up your act. 
uh, pronto, get out front, in the public, at the podium, admit wrongdoing. The same response to crisis management that's in the case studies at Harvard Business School. For example, the Maple Leaf, a Listeria scandal, the Exxon Valdez. The first thing you do is you don't deny, 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 blame, 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 point the finger at somebody else. You step up at the microphone, the leadership of the organization, and say, we screwed up terribly. We are deeply sorry, and we are going to get to the bottom of it starting tomorrow morning. And we don't hear that contrition. We don't hear that coming from Hockey Canada. They've been uh, talking with marbles in their mouth for the past five days. So will we... What they should be doing. Will we hear that from the corporations? Will there be pressures on these corporations from their customers to speak up? The the corporations uh, uh, corporations don't want to, they're in that sense they're very political they don't want to be in the media with this story they're not going to be holding press conferences the sponsors are not going to hold press conferences giving advice to Hockey Canada on how to clean up their mess mm. they're going to exit they're going to speak with their actions. There was a wonderful book written some 40, 50 years ago by an economist in the States. It's still in print called Exit Voice or Loyalty. And he said, you really have three responses like this. You can exit, which means you walk away and say, I'm out of here. I'm going to have anything to do with these people. Or you can remain and, and speak out publicly to try to reform the place. Or thirdly, loyalty is you just say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. And just we're going to suck it up. Increasingly, companies are, are just willing to walk away. They're not going, they're not, their job is not to reform the organization that they've been partnered with that is messed up so badly. They will simply walk away. And this is up to the. This is junior hockey. Uh, obviously, the stakes are higher when you're, uh, this is a professional league or a professional team. Does this apply to all sports now? I absolutely do. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a NFL junkie. I mean, I just, um, I watch it all the time and I've been fascinated, absolutely fascinated because the NFL, the entity, which is this enormous entity that generates $15 billion a year, according to Forbes magazine, that's an enormous, that's larger than the GDP of many developing countries around the world. And, and from the time of uh, Kaepernick, Colin Kaepernick, and about the same time as the Black Lives Matter movement. Up until then, the NFL was, they just shrugged their shoulders at these various crises that came along, concussions, you know, of athletes and so forth. And they just shrugged and said, you know, so what? That's just the way it is. And then public opinion turned against the NFL very, very strongly around the time of Colin Kaepernick and Black Lives Matter. And now if you watch the NFL and the and their program, um, uh, NFL.com, they have their own broadcast network. They have become a deeply, deeply committed to the whole idea of corporate social responsibility. They run ads showing how dedicated they are to the lesbian, gay, transgender community. Uh, they run ads about how they're working with the black uh, communities and the historically black community colleges, uh, how they're working with the Latino community. And they've just done a 180 degree transformation. Sports has become very political in a good sense. And, and they understand the advertisers, the, the sponsors will not uh, risk their brand being uh, uh, damaged by being in association with an organization like the NFL or like Hockey Canada that's acting in a way that is uh, seen as irresponsible. 
And so the change is not going to come from the legislators, from the Congress or the House of Commons or MPs. It's going to come from the court of public opinion, putting incredible pressure on these companies who will use the power of the purse. They will walk away with their multi-millions and millions of dollars. They'll just say, we're out of here. And these organizations are dependent on these sponsors. I mean, hmm. the amount of money that the NFL gets is mostly from sponsorship because they're the people paying the huge ads to the networks who then pay the big contracts to the NFL. So the point is, is that the reform, the transformation, the change that's driving change in this and the sports world are the sponsors, the corporations. Who would have ever thought that they hmm. are the agents of progressive reform today? Not the nonprofits, corporate profit-making corporations. All right, Ian, I want to ask you something completely unrelated. It's about the papal visit. And as soon as I saw this, I thought of you. Uh, we all are focused on on the Pope's visit to Canada. I remember in past situations, everything from how he traveled to how he got around in, in his Pope mobile. As I'm watching the Pope uh, tour Canada, the Pope mobile is a Jeep. How does that happen? How is that a coincidence? How big a deal is this for the corporation? I'm, I'm sorry. Can you unpack that question a little bit more? I'm not sure I understand your question. The papal, uh, the Pope mobile that the yeah. Pope has been walking, uh, driving around in, yes. is yes, yes. a modified Jeep. Uh, yes. it, it's easy to tell. Is that yes. some? Is that a coincidence, or is that something the court pays for? Uh, that's a very good question. I don't know, to be honest. I can speculate. I mean, it's good public relations to go to the North America where Jeep is made, as we know. It's made in Toledo, Ohio, and it's very and can, it's and an can iconic we, brand. And can Jeep say, look, even the Pope has picked us? I mean, can, how, do you do, how do you deal with this? It, it's good. Listen, it's very good public relations uh, for Jeep. Uh, because, as I said, it is so iconic and is being used to protect this, you know, this frail uh, elderly individual uh, who is here on a mission of uh, of, of, of uh, contr- uh, contrition and an apology. So, I mean, from uh, Jeep's point of view, this is a public relations coup um, and, and not to trivialize the overarching purpose yeah, because he's yeah. here, obviously, very serious reasons that the Catholic Church has its own very serious problems, as we know, and he's here to apologize and get out in front of the issue in a way that Yes, belatedly. They're doing it now much late, very late. But Hockey Canada, just to draw a compare and contrast, Hockey Canada isn't there yet. Yeah. They're still back in the uh, making excuses and trying to mm. point and displace blame. You can't do that. You've got to get out front and say, you know, the, the, the case studies of the most successful crisis management are where the CEO admits yeah. a full resp- uh, blame and responsibility and says, we are going to fix it immediately. There's Got to no cut you off there, Ian. We are completely out of time. Ian Lee with his associate professor of Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. We'll have you back on sponsorship and sport and religion. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, with the papal visit to Canada and the reconciliation that's been going on, uh, the images that we've all seen uh, have been incredibly moving, to say uh, the very least. Let's get the take of Phil Carpenter, a photojournalist with Global News, who's been covering this event. By the way, the Pope at the Notre Dame Cathedral right now. And Phil is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. 
I'm sure over your career you've seen lots of things through your lens that have uh, that have set you back or, or made you take note. What is it like covering this event? Uh, what's the mood like? The mood, it really depends on who you speak with. Um, overall, I would say among Indigenous peoples who we've uh, spoken to, it's it's somber and it really is trigger, triggering for a lot of people. Uh, you know, unless, you know, we hear a lot of times that, uh, you know, a lot of things that uh, indigenous people went through at residential schools and, and you know other experiences can be really hard. But until you speak with them, meet with them face to face, and really discuss what it is that they've been going through, you really don't understand. And here, with so many people around and with so many people sharing stories and exchanging stories, this is where it really, really hits you hard. Just the extent to which some of them have have, uh, have really suffered. So I'd say overall, the mood among the people that we've been speaking with, I would say it's 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 somber. And what's it like for you to, because obviously this ceremony isn't typical of any papal visit. This is completely directed at the indigenous community, which is great to see. And their involvement in it uh, has been spectacular. What stands out for you? I mean, for me, I'm thinking of uh, that image of the Pope putting on the headdress. But then you speak of uh, other images involving survivors. I can think of the one uh, of the lady who was singing uh, O Canada in her native tongue. What stands out for you? (laughs) <laughs> That's a good question. I would say hurt, but hope. It's it's really it's really interesting because you know it's as a person of color myself, and you know a person who wasn't born and raised in, in in Canada. There are certain things that I went through personally that I really didn't think of until I started talking with with, with some of these people. And I wouldn't say I haven't really spoken with anybody here in Quebec City who um, is. I would say angry. Uh, there is some people, a lot of people actually, especially in uh, Saint Anne de Beaupre, where the uh, where the, the, the the Pope had a mass this morning, and where there are a lot of um, indigenous people who are themselves Catholic as well. Those who I spoke to really expressed a lot of hope that there, you know, this is the beginning of meaningful change. But then there are others who I spoke with who didn't, or simply don't consider themselves Catholic at all, and who didn't go to the mass, and they were listening. They were really hoping for the Pope to say something about, for example, the doctrine of discovery. And, and, and other things. And they were disappointed with what he did not say. Still hopeful, mm. but still hoping for other things, a meaningful, more meaningful things moving forward. Uh, for events or situations you have covered, how does this rank? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've covered such a wide range of things. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I would say perhaps the most horroring thing I've ever covered, first of all, the, the earthquake in Haiti. Mm-hmm. This is meaningful and, and, and sad in a different kind of way, but also hopeful, you know, really, really hopeful. I can't uh, over, overstate just how hopeful some people are that this really is the start of something meaningful. So, you know, I guess we'll see where we go from here. Capturing the post visit uh, through Canada. Phil Carpenter has been with us, photojournalist with Global News, as we hear about what he sees through his lens. Phil, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You bet. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Will Weber for producing uh, on the board. Thanks for uh, Will Erskine for producing and booking the guests. And, of course, Dana Weeks in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. 
Kevin writes in about the municipal election to say, What devil does one vote for? We have four devils and we don't know which to vote for. We can't even say, vote for the devil you know. None of these candidates are intelligent enough to be elected. All candidates so far are losers. Wow! Leave it at that.